Well, we're back inside this week and continuing a series that we've been in through the summer in the book of James called Show Me It's Real. And we've been saying throughout this series that often Christians are more known for the the political stances they take, the beliefs they defend, rather than the character they possess or the good that they do. And so we've been going back to this letter of James and trying to understand what is genuine faith, what does it look like, how should it uh, appear in our lives, how can we know when we have it, and uh, how can we live it out. Uh, This morning, we're looking at how to stop arguing and just dealing with some of the uh, the heart of that, where it comes from, uh, and how to, how to diagnose it and deal with it. Now, I was a little bit encouraged when I found out uh, this morning that this is not just something that Christian uh, churches need to deal with. Uh, so I heard uh, Peter Alindigan tell the story of a young rabbi who was actually struggling in his new, new role in this, in this area. He, he was finding that uh, during the Sabbath service, half the cr- congregation stood for the prayers, and the other half of the congregation remain seated for the prayers. And that might be an okay thing to do, have a little bit of variety, but um, what was happening was each side was shouting at the other, insisting that theirs was the true tradition. And it didn't seem to matter what this young rabbi did. Nobody seemed to calm down, couldn't seem to resolve the, the dispute. Each was insisting that they were right and couldn't seem to do anything about it. Well, the young rabbi decided to go to the uh, founding uh, rabbi of this particular synagogue, a 99-year-old man who was in a long-term care facility. He'd seen the the history uh, of this particular uh, synagogue, and he thought, this guy will have the answers. Uh, So uh, he he asked him, tell me, rabbi, was it the tradition for the congregation to stand during prayers? And... And the old rabbi said, no. And he said, oh, okay, perfect. So it it was a tradition for the congregation to sit during the prayers. And the old rabbi said, no. He said, well, that, that, that doesn't help me at all because what we have is complete chaos. Half the congregation stands, half of them sits, and, and they're screaming and yelling at each other. We can't get anything done. He says, ah, oh, that was a tradition. <laughs> and... Now, I, I wish that that was just a, a, a joke that we could say about some, some other, uh, other group, but the reality is that could be true of Christian congregations uh, throughout our country, throughout uh, history. And in fact, it was part of the reality that the congregations that James was addressing in the early church were struggling with. There were actual arguments and disputes and fights and conflicts among the early churches that he was seeking to establish, and he wanted to speak God's truth into the midst of that, seek to bring healing, peace, and reconciliation between them. Now, if it was just in church that we had these kinds of problems, or even primarily in church that we have these kinds of problems, maybe that would be easier to solve. But you know the reality. Most people are, are, tend to smile and, and make nice on a Sunday morning. It is often with our spouses or our kids or our coworkers, our, our neighbors, our colleagues, that we are having these kinds of arguments. And we're trying to understand How does the scripture speak into those? Are there things that we can be doing 
and doing differently and uh, asking God to allow us to understand uh, what, what his word might, uh, might say about these things. Uh, so I want to encourage you to turn with me to James chapter 4, verses 1 to 12. Uh, on the, uh, in the Black Church Bibles, on the rack under the seat in front of you, it's on page 951. And I'll be reading just from verses 1 to 12, but we'll be, we'll be walking our way through that whole passage uh, all morning. So if you keep that out in front of you, it'll be a big help. James chapter 4, verses 1 to 12. What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. You adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you suppose it is to no purpose that the scripture says, he yearns jealously over the spirit he has made to dwell in us, but he gives more grace. Therefore, it says, God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will exalt you. Do not speak evil against one another, brothers. The one who speaks evil against a brother or judges his brother speaks evil against the law and judges the law. But if you judge the law, you are not a doer of the law, but a judge. There is only one lawgiver and judge he who is able to save and to destroy, but who are you to judge your neighbor? This is the word of God. Now, the first way that the the passage presents for us to stop arguing is to learn to entrust our needs to the one who truly loves us, the one who can truly uh, meet those needs in our lives. God is the one who enables us to discern between what we actually need and what we actually are just things that we want, things that we're trying to get but not necessarily need. And he is also the one who can provide for our needs. So he's urging us to come to him. So we entrust your needs to the one who truly loves you. Now, James seems to be addressing some pretty serious conflict here. But he doesn't tell anyone in the midst of this conflict, hey, all you guys need to do is kind of compromise or meet in the middle or have a time out. He, he instead diagnoses some of the root causes and, and tries to lay down some principles that will not just solve one problem, but will give them kind of a strategy going forward to deal with the problems in their lives. So in response to his question, what causes quarrels and fights among you? He says, is it not this that your passions are at war within you. You desire and do not have, so you murder. Um, most people believe it. he wasn't actually saying there were people in the congregation like bringing out their swords and, and killing each other. Uh, it, it, it's, it's like, why, why are you killing each other like this? He was, he was speaking metaphorically of the, the kind of uh, intensity of arguments and fights that they were having. Uh, also, and, and then he goes on, you covet and cannot obtain so you fight and quarrel. 
So he's talking about passions, desires, coveting. And, and, and all of those words seem to point to this internal churning for more. There, there was something inside them that was, that was seeking to, to grab something. And any time that you have this internal battle within you, it's not long before that internal battle will spill out into the relationships around you. And you will find yourself seeking to bring out the claws and, and uh, the, 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 the harsh words for those people who are standing between you and what it is that you feel that you need. So hold that thought now and hear what he says in verse 2. In the end of verse 2, he says, you do not have because you do not ask God. So there's this internal battle going on. I got to have this. I want it. I want it. And, and what was happening is they were, it was spilling over and they were doing this with each other. And he's saying, you don't have these things that you want because you're not asking. And if you read further on, you realize he's talking about prayer. You're not asking God for these things. And, and, and the, the understanding here is that this is what is stirring up. It's one of the things that stirs up our fights is when we are looking to people for what God would rightly provide us. That we're seeking to have needs met that God would, would gladly provide for us if we would only ask him. If we would only look to him in prayer. If we would go to him in those times of need. Maybe the things that you're looking for people to give you are affirmation, respect, love. Who doesn't want those things? Who doesn't feel the need of those things? And maybe you're mad that people around you are, are not more faithful. They're not more reliable. They're not more fair. And all of those things are, are good things. It's, it's natural to want those from the people around us. But those are the things that God is good at showing and people often fail in showing. People often drop the ball in those areas and God is a constant. God is a steady and he wants to be able to minister to us in those areas. And so he's saying, if you find yourself arguing with people about those things in your, in your life that you need, he's saying, what you really need to do is to have more prayer in your life to seek God for those things, to look to him for those things that he might fill you, that he might do in your heart what you most need uh, for him to fill you up. Now, that doesn't mean that you never share your needs with people. It doesn't mean that you don't, don't still have some sense of, yeah, I, 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 I wish that person would do that for me. I wish that person would give that to me. But if you go to God to have your needs met first, it means you're not so desperate. It means that you're not killing the person when they don't give you what you want. Because you've learned to find your contentment in God. You've learned to find your needs met in him. And then you can relate to the people around you without that, that vacuum that, that so desperately needs to be filled. Now, in verse 3, it's after telling people to pray, now he's dealing with the people who are praying. And sometimes, maybe you're saying, hey, Paul, that's not my thing. I'm praying about my needs all the time. I'm looking to God to have them mad. And frankly, I'm mad at him as well as these other people in my life. And that's where he turns next in verse 3. 
So he pictures the person who's decided to take his advice. They've decided to pray, and listen to what he says. You ask, and you do not receive, because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. Here, the the recognition is that this person hasn't really come to understand Christian prayer. They see prayer as a selfish exchange where I demand God what I want, and if he doesn't give it to me, I'm going to lay it on him. I'm going to have it out with him. And and, and so this kind of exchange is taking place here with God, it's very similar to the, to, the, to the arguments and fights that the people are having uh, with each other. He, James is saying, if you see prayer as this selfish exchange where you just demand of God what he's got to do for you, he's actually not going to do anything for you. You will actually not receive what he would otherwise be happy to give you. Let's, and, and, and part of that is you're you're asking for the wrong things, you're asking with the wrong motivation. It is a selfish relationship with the Lord. Rather than coming to him as our creator, our God, our almighty, and trusting him as our father, there there can be a tendency to approach him as a genie. I'm rubbing the bottle. Why why am I not getting my three wishes? So God is one who can help us to discern between our needs and our wants. Uh, when, when we are in the process of prayer, he shapes our prayers. He changes us in the, in the context of prayer. Now, how does this relate back to our problem with the arguments and the people in our lives? Um, one of the ways it does that is in the process of prayer, rightly understood, he begins to help us to see what what it is we need and what it is we want. Because we look to his word, because often I'll find myself saying, boy, I really want this, and I'm praying about this. And then I'll think, but I'm not sure God has ever promised that in scripture. I'm I'm not sure that that's kind of part of the package. I'd like to have it. It might be nice to have, but it's not something that God has promised that I need to have. Now, how this kind of brings us full circle, there was a, there was, this is, the, the survey, the top line of this survey probably won't come as a surprise to any of you. There's a, a survey reported in the Wall Street Journal, and it said the number one reason that couples argue is about the topic of money. Yeah, that, that part's not a, not a big surprise. They, they, uh, they came to the conclusion that couples tend to argue about three times a month about the topic of money. But it was interesting to me what they said was the main reason that they argued about money. The reason that they argued about money was that the couples couldn't agree on, the, on what was a need and what was a want. I think I need to have it. The other person said, no, I think you just want to have it. That doesn't seem to be a need. And, and meanwhile, you've got something in your life. Like, I need to have this. And then the other person said, I don't think that's something you need. That's just kind of a want. And so you're arguing back and forth about how that money is going to be spent or how it was already spent sometimes. And, and so there's this, this, this huge chaos of how that, that, that money is going to be spent and how you agree on what is a need, what is a want. Now take that same couple that's arguing about what they need and what they want. How about they decide 
they kind of heard a sermon from James chapter 4 and decided, why don't, we, why don't we actually pray about this instead of keep arguing about it? Why don't we put it before the Lord and, and ask him? And as we ask him, we're not going to do that kind of self, selfish uh, rub, the, rub the genie bottle prayer. We're, we're, we're going to treat God like he's God. And you know that Jesus taught us to pray for our daily bread, not our daily Cadillacs, right? You, you know that Jesus showed a vision of prayer that says, not my will, but yours be done. And, and so as we begin, as a couple beginning to pray about this thing that is uh, on, you know, I think it's this, I think it's that, we put it before the Lord. And as you do that, you begin to realize Maybe this thing that we think that I want, maybe that isn't, maybe that's not a necessity after all. Maybe, maybe in fact, God has provided for so many of our needs and maybe our understanding of our needs begins to, to, to change and we begin to see our, our lives, our possessions, what we have in a different perspective. Maybe that begins to develop a sense of contentment, a gratefulness even for all that God has provided. And it begins to shape the conversations, begins to change the way you're looking at the things in your life and the things that you would otherwise be uh, arguing and fighting over in your lives. Now, the people in the, ch- in the churches James confronted, they had another problem. Because not only were they dealing with uh, their needs and their wants, but, but a lot of their thinking in this area was being dictated by the values of the world around them instead of by his word. And so uh, that's where he, he turns next with some really blunt words in verse 4. He says, you adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Now, those are strong words to say to someone, right? You call someone an adulterous person, or you call someone out in this way, you become an enemy to me in the way you're treating. Those are, those are strong words. Now, how would you feel if your, your husband was, was, I don't know, say glued to some other, other woman's Instagram all day long? How would you feel if your, your wife was thinking about some other guy all day long? What he's saying is, that's actually how God feels when we sit, spend our day obsessing over what other people think and what other people say and give very little regard to what he thinks and what he says. It feels like adultery to God. It feels like a betrayal. It feels like we've given our allegiance to someone else and it it grieves him. It pains him. Now, usually when someone commits adultery, the relationship is over. But if you look at verse 5, after calling out the adultery, it says he yearns jealously over us. And that is an expression that God still cares for us. He still longs for us. He wants us as his own. He has this passion for us, a a love that, frankly, we don't deserve. And so we're, we're, we're being reminded, not only is this God telling us what we need, what we want, not only is he sharing his, his passion to, to, to be faithful, to provide for our needs, but he's reminding us he's the one who loves us. 
He's the one who cares for us. And so he's, he's saying, let me shape your values. Let me dictate what it is that, that, that you most need in your life. Let me shape your perspective and uh, the, the direction of your life rather than the world. Look to me for those things. So let's stop demanding of people what only God can provide. Let's seek God for our needs first. Let's look to him for contentment with our wants And through prayer, let's learn to discern the difference between what we need and what we want. And having filled up ourselves in him through prayer and time in his presence, let's let that fuel lives that are, have a contentment that can cope with our world, that can deal with what's happening around us. So, so far we said to stop arguing, you need to deal with the inward battle that's going inside, the, the, the desires that are, uh, that are inside us. And we entrust our needs to the God who truly loves us. Unfortunately, your d- desires aren't the only part of the formula. Often, pride can enter into the picture and get in the way of uh, the relationships that we have and fuel and fan uh, the, uh, the, the, the fighting in our lives. Here, the the invitation is to humble yourself before the God who keeps giving. So recognition of what pride can do and how it can stir up arguments, but also how humility has a way of bringing, uh, of diffusing the the, the tone of, of, of the relationship and bringing peace and reconciliation where there was none. Humble yourself before the God who keeps giving. Now, James begins this section uh, in verse 6 by quoting from Proverbs 3.34. There he says, God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Then he ends the section in verse 10 stating something almost the same, but this time with an appeal and a promise. There he says, humble yourselves before the Lord and he will exalt you. The message is, God is generous with people who humble themselves, but he gets in the way. He actually stands in the way and opposes people who are proud. And, and, and so we're, we're, we're stopping here and saying, well, like, what is pride? And how, could that be the thing that is, is getting in the way of my relationships? Is that, is that what is fueling some of the arguments in my life? Is, is pride something that I need to come to terms with? Uh, pride is the attitude that assumes you know all the answers. It assumes that you're right and the other person must be wrong. Uh, pride is the attitude that says, well, my side of this can't be all that big a deal. It's mostly the other person. Uh, pride is the thing that says, I don't need anybody, anybody, others, anybody else's advice. I don't need their opinions. I, I know what is happening here. And... This person just needs to see things in my way. Maybe, maybe that's what's happening in your life. Maybe, that, maybe some of the arguments in your life are signs that there is a deeper issue between you and the Lord. Maybe there is a deeper issue of humility that you need to come to terms with. Now, pride feels like a problem. It feels like an abstract thing. You can't... You can't 
see pride. Like it's, it's not a visible thing. It just You look for signs of it, right? So if you can't see it, it also feels like, I'm not sure I can ever fix that. I'd, I see humble people, and I think, wow, that'd be great if I was one of them, but like, how do you get from here to there? Um, James actually gives you uh, three ways, three, three things to think about when moving from a proud person to a humble person. The first way is you humble, you humble yourself is you submit to God instead of the world. The very act of saying, God, I'm going to do it your way, not my way, or not the way everybody else is telling me to do it, bringing yourself under his authority. I choose to do what you say. That very act is building humility in your life. Verse 7 says, Submit yourselves therefore to God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Now, if you're completely honest, some of you treat the creator of the universe, like an afterthought. In a very casual way, you treat his commands in a casual way. You treat his words like just another book. It, it, it just doesn't feature very prominently in your thinking, in your values, in your decisions. And, 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 and that is an expression of pride. For you to say, I don't think I need the Almighty's wisdom on this, I think I got this figured out, is to kind of put yourself above the Lord. And, and so we're, 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 when, whenever we say, I need, his, I need to do things his way, it's with a recognition because I don't have all the answers myself. And it builds humility so you submit to him. You place yourself under him. You treat him with the weight that he deserves. Uh, then he says in verse 8, the next way you humble yourselves is to draw near to God instead of the world. Here it's a recognition that I, I, I know uh, that I need time with him. I need time in his presence. I need time in his word. I need to listen to him. And, and, and in doing so, I'm confronting that pride in my heart that says, I don't need him. I don't need anybody. I've got it figured out. I'm going forward on my own steam. And so every time you decide, I'm going to, you know what? I could, have sleep, I could sleep in. I could do a hundred other things. I could check my emails. I could scroll social media. I'm going to set this, this time aside for the Lord. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to choose to read his word. I'm going to choose to spend time in his presence in prayer. Your, your very act of doing that is an expression of humility. It's saying, I need his help. And you bring, begin to remind yourself of that every morning, every morning, morning by morning. That it begins to affect how you relate to other people. It builds humility. The final way James gives to humble yourself is to grieve the sins that grieve the heart of God. Now, in verse 9, he sounds like an Old Testament prophet, and maybe you're thinking, boy, we never, we never think about God like this. We never talk about God like this. This is, I've never seen this in cross-stitch before, ever. Like, nobody has this in their, in their, as their life verse. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Anybody, anybody thinking about the Lord like that? 
When was the last time that you felt about your sins like that? That they really grieved you? They pained you? We, we so often talk about how freely the Lord forgives us that we begin to think it doesn't cost him anything. It doesn't mean anything to, a, to him when we sin. And it does. It pains him. It grieves the Holy Spirit, the scripture says. And I think we, I think we know this from like every single other relationship in our life, but we just... Somehow we kind of put it out of our mind with the Lord. Like if your wife walked in on you with another woman and, and you said, oh, I'm sorry, what's for dinner anyway? Like what would that mean to your relationship? What would that say about you? And, and yet that's what we're doing when we treat our sins casually. When we, when we acknowledge, oh yeah, I did that, Lord. Like when we just have this, this casual, and we all do it, right? Like we, 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 we confess our sins, but we do so, so lightly. So little recognition of what it feels to God's heart after all he's done for us to, to, to turn our backs on him and go the other way. And, and so he, he's, he's saying, Nurture these things. Learn to, to mourn over your sins. Learn to treat them the way that he does. Learn to feel the weight of that when you confess your sins. And you don't stay there. The, the message of the gospel is not that you, you, you learn to turn all your laughter into mourning and you walk around in the gloom all day long. But when you confront the sins in your life, you do so with seriousness. And then when you receive the forgiveness of God, you feel that weight lifted. But that very casualness is an expression of our pride. And so until we humble ourselves, and until we learn to see our sins and grieve our sins the way they grieve God, uh, that, that pride remains and we, we are uh, set apart from the humility that we need for our relationship with him and for our relationships with each other. Now, there are different ways that our eyes are open to the sins in our lives. And, and God's calling us in this verse to just to recognize this, to begin to do this, to, to grieve your sins because they grieve him. I, I think of the way Taggart Woods had his eyes opened to the seriousness of his sins. You, you, you um, probably most of you are familiar with this. Ellen Nordegren learned of his affairs. She, she was scrolling through his phone and seeing the, the extent of what had taken place. She threw his phone at him. Then she went uh, somewhat ironically for his golf club. She started waving that around at him. He rushes off to the car. She then takes the golf club and takes it to the back window, smashes the back window of his car in. He's so freaked out by the realization. He tears off, doing about 87 miles an hour. He goes off the road into a tree and crashes the vehicle. He later said this, my life was out of balance. My priorities were out of order. I made terrible choices and repeated mistakes. 
I hurt people whom I love the most. And even beyond accepting the consequences and responsibility, there's the ongoing struggle to learn from my failings. And he says this, at first I didn't want to look inward. Frankly, I was scared of what I would find, what I had become. Golf is a self-centered game in ways good and bad. So much depends on one's abilities. But for me, that self-reliance made me think I could tackle the world by myself. It made me think if I was successful at golf, then I was invincible. Now I know that no matter how tough or strong we are, we need to rely on others. Now, of course, as Christians, we'd love for him to see his sins through God's eyes, not just his wife's eyes. We'd love for him to see his need to rely on the Lord, not just to rely on other people. But he was humbled. He came to see things that he didn't want to see about himself. He came to admit things that he didn't want to admit about himself. And I, I wonder whether there is a humbling that needs to take place in your life. Whether, whether there are sins that, frankly, you just haven't treated the way God does. Is pride fueling the arguments in your life? Does God, does God need to wave around a golf club for you to see some of the things that he's trying to make you see? Or will his word be enough? Will his gentle invitation be enough to say, enough? I, I, I'm, I'm not going to brush this one off anymore. I'm going to come to terms with it. In verse 6, God pray, promises grace to the humble. In verse 10, he promises to exalt those who humble themselves. What kind of a God is that? He lifts people up who bring themselves down. This God of grace makes these promises to us and we realize he doesn't have to do that. He doesn't need to treat us like that. We're, we're those people who have betrayed him and rejected him. And yet he gives more grace. So submit to him. Come to him, grieve your sins, and know that in doing so, you receive his grace in the process. He sets you free. Now, the first two causes of our arguments have assumed that we're the instigators. But you know that's not always the case. And maybe you've kind of been hearing this and thinking, no, no, it really is the other person, Paul. Like, it's, this is crazy. Like, it, there's something going on here. It's them. So he moves now to the last cause of our arguments. It really relates here to how we respond when we think we're right and when possibly when we are right. Here the lesson is, let God do the judging and you show the grace. Just because we're in the right, it doesn't give us a free pass to badmouth someone, to unload on them with our words, to treat them the way that we would uh, otherwise treat them. We let God do the judging, and we show the grace. Now, in verse 11, it begins, do not speak evil against one another, brothers. And then at the end of this section, at the end of verse 12, he says, but who are you to judge your neighbor? So we've got some speaking evil, judging. Uh, the, 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 the phrase here, speak evil against each other, 
the word evil actually isn't there in the text. It's just to, to help explain what's going on here. It's speaking against someone. It's just a broad term to encompass all of the different ways that we can oppose people and hurt people with our words. It, it includes the true things that we say about people that, frankly, we didn't mean to say, right? It, it includes the false things that we say about people that were just that were just wrong. Maybe we did it intentionally. Maybe we didn't. Maybe we misunderstood. We said things about people that were untrue and unkind, and they didn't need to be said. It includes the words that hurt others, whether they're intentional or not. And the problem is, when we think we're in the right, we think we deserve to say those things. We think we deserve to unload on them, because look at what they did. It's mostly about them. We take the role of the judge and referee, and we want to give the final word on that person's character, on their actions, on their conduct. Now, verse 12 says, There is only one lawgiver and judge, he who is able to save and to destroy. The message is, God is the only one who is ultimately able and qualified to judge people, even to pronounce condemnation on people eventually. He's able to do that not only because he's the lawgiver, not only because he's the one who created the law itself, not only because he is the standard for that law, that he perfectly uh, demonstrates that law. That, that's not the only reason. It's also not the only reason, not just because he's the one who perfectly sees, perfectly understands, perfectly measures justice. That's not it. It's also because... He's the one who not only judges, he's the one who also saves. He holds out salvation, and so he alone is qualified to pronounce judgment. And, and, and so we're encouraged to, to see that. God could have brought an end to history yesterday, right? He, he could have brought this all together, uh, wrapped up history, pronounced judgment, settled things. You are, are, are destined to be eternally separated from me in hell. You are, are, are destined to be eternally uh, blessed by me in heaven. He could, have, he could have already tallied the scorecards. And he chose not to. He chose to delay things, to withhold his judgment. And it's because he's, he's patient. He takes his time. But in the process, it feels like he's letting people off the hook. It doesn't feel fair. It feels like he's letting them get away with too much. But that's deliberate. He's trying to reach them. He's trying to save them. That's why he gets to decide when judgment comes because he's the one with the plan to rescue those who are dying. I love how Paul puts this in Romans 2.4. Do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? It's saying that there are people in your life who seem to be getting away with murder. Just doesn't seem right. They, they just keep doing the wrong thing and God just seems too patient with them. Too, he's just letting them go. He's too lenient. 
enough already. And the, the verse is, is saying that, that God is patient with them. Yes, he, is, he, he, is with, he, he does that because that is part of his plan to reach them. It is part of his plan to show this undeserved kindness, this undeserved patience, this undeserved grace, undeserved love, so that they would see him and turn to him. That they would come to him in repentance, come to him for mercy. So that's the plan. Now what happens if you say, well, they're wrong, so I'm going to let them have it. I'm going to pronounce judgment right now because I can see that it's, it's them and it's not me. What you are actually doing is short-circuiting this plan to reach this person. And, and if you call yourself a Christian while you're doing it, you are, in, in one sense, standing in the way of God because he's, he's got a different program than you do. And you're saying, well, I'm one of his representatives. I'm, I'm, I'm doing what, what the Lord would do. And, and the Lord's like, no, no, that's not me. That's not what I'm trying to do at all. You don't understand. I'm trying to draw them by, by my grace and my mercy, and you keep pronouncing judgment on them. You keep condemning them. So before you say it's unfair, before you say, nah, I, just, I don't like this plan, I think God's got this one wrong. Remember, this is how the Lord treats you. This is the way the Lord has always treated you. You know that. You know his patience and kindness in your life when you are 100% wrong. You know the grace that he treats you with when you have, have, have sinned, you've betrayed him, you've turned your back on him. And you know how that grace drew you back to him every time. You know the effect that his patience has had in your heart, in your life. And he only asks you to see it as he now extends it to others. To join him in that and be a part of what he's doing. So let's just conclude our time this morning and remind ourselves what he's doing when we are in our arguments. Okay? Let's remind ourselves where God is, what he's thinking when we're going like this at each other with our, uh, our fights and our, our conflicts. When you're at war demanding that the person give you, what, give you what you want, what you feel you need, God's waiting for you to ask him. God's waiting to bless you and to meet your needs. He's hoping you'll come to him in, in prayer and trust him to provide. He's hoping that you will take your cues from him and his word rather than this world as to what, what you truly need and what is just desire, what's just a want. He's hoping you'll find your contentment in him. When your arguments are fueled by pride, he's trying to humble you. He's hoping that you'll submit to him. He's hoping that you'll draw near to him and recognize your need of him. He's hoping you'll see your sins and how they pain him and grieve them. And he'll, he, he's hoping that you will see those sins the way he does. Treat them the way he does. When you're speaking against the people who bother you, he wishes that you'd stop acting like the referee. 
that you would see how patient he is, how gracious he is, but he's, he, 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 he's acting like that for a reason. Because his plan is to save. His plan is to redeem as many as would come. And so he's inviting you to join him in that process, seeking to rescue people instead of writing them off or standing in his way. God is with us in our arguments, and sometimes it's in our arguments that we have the opportunity to most clearly see him and to most clearly see our own hearts. So let's look to him. Let's pray to him. Let's lean on him. And let's call upon his name now in prayer. Heavenly Father, thank you for not leaving us alone in our conflicts. Help us to look to you for our needs. Help us to look to your word to understand what's truly important. Would you humble us? Would you break down the pride that keeps getting in the way? And let us trust you with all of the judgment. If you're the referee, then we don't need to keep score. So teach us to reflect your grace and to show your love. And we pray for peace in our relationships as we do. For we ask you in Jesus' name, amen.